Hello and welcome to the Bigger Government Podcast. I'm Mark Robinson and I'm here to talk about my book, Bigger Government, The Future of Government Expenditure in Advanced Economies. In this first episode, I'm going to summarise the major themes of the book and then I'm going to go into more detail about the future of health spending. This book contains five overarching messages. The first is that government spending will increase greatly over the coming decades in all advanced countries. This isn't going to be because of the arrival in power of left-wing politicians committed to big spending initiatives. It's going to happen largely irrespective of which political parties are in office. Secondly, what's going to be pushing spending up a powerful technological, environmental, demographic and other forces to which governments will have very little choice but to respond. These forces are going to push up spending in health, climate change, long-term care and in many countries, age pensions and infrastructure. Thirdly, governments are certainly going to try hard to offset these spending pressures by cutting spending elsewhere. However, it's going to prove impossible to completely offset the extra spending. In many areas of public spending, there really is limited scope for further cuts after the way budgets have been squeezed over recent decades. Many of the methods that have been used to hold spending down in the past, such as neglecting infrastructure, are unsustainable and have well and truly reached their use-by dates. Fourthly, faced with these pressures, you can forget about smaller government. There's absolutely no way that downsizing government is realistically imaginable. The cuts which would be required would be politically impossible in democratic societies. The fifth and final message of the book is that there will be no room for progressive hobby horses such as a universal basic income or free university education. There'll be simply too much spending pressure elsewhere for these to be affordable. So where is government headed in the coming decades? Government spending has literally surged in the face of the pandemic. But what about the longer term, the post-pandemic era? This is a question on which there is already fierce debate. People have completely different ways of looking at the issue depending on their politics. The political right believes as a matter of principle in smaller government. They think that money is, as a rule, better off left in the hands of citizens rather than spent by the government. There are very few of us indeed who believe that we are getting our money's worth for the 40% of our income that is being used to support state, local and federal governments. That was the Nobel Prize winning economist Milton Friedman back in 1978. But there is another issue and that's the question of fiscal sustainability. Even before the pandemic, Government debt had reached very high levels in many advanced countries. The way conservatives see it, this was the consequence of years of government overspending. 
The problem now is that with the spending response to the pandemic, government debt is set to jump a lot more, probably by at least another 20% of gross domestic product. So to many, this makes it absolutely essential that we act soon to cut government spending levels permanently in order to bring debt back down. This is the way a former head of the US Congressional Budget Office and well-known fiscal conservative saw the situation back in April 2020. In the aftermath of this, we're going to have to get the debt under control. Everyone's talked about it and paid lip service to it, but right. no one's really done anything, and, and it's time. The time for stimulus has passed. Of course, the left and progressive side of politics see things completely differently. They believe that governments spend far too little, that as a result of years of spending cuts and austerity, education, health, infrastructure, and other basic government services are woefully inadequate, and that there's really been no more graphic illustration of this than the difficulty that underfunded public hospitals have had in coping with the coronavirus pandemic. This is the way the former British Labour Party leader Jeremy Corbyn described the consequences of austerity during the 2019 national election debate. The reality of austerity has meant the life chances of children have been damaged by underfunding schools and the levels of dislocation and poverty in so many areas of Britain deliberately because of austerity must and will change. Progressives consider that it is essential that the post-pandemic era be very different from the past. It's now time, in their view, to turn our back firmly on austerity for governments to spend whatever is required to meet the big challenges of the future. So progressives completely reject the notion that budgetary policy should be held hostage to some neoliberal obsession with deficits and debt. So if we look at the public debate on government spending, we come away with the conviction that the future of government depends mainly on the outcome of the political contest between left and right, on which parties are elected to office and on their visions of the role of government. And it would follow that if we want to know where government spending is headed, then what we need to do is to focus mainly on analysing political trends. My book says, in a nutshell, that this is the wrong way of looking at things. Sure, politics are important. However, and this is the basic tenet of the book. The long-term direction of total government spending in advanced economies will not be determined mainly by politics. Powerful external forces and pressures are going to impact on government budgets over coming decades and shape spending levels pretty much irrespective of which parties control government. In the book Bigger Government, I showed that the powerful external forces which I mentioned are going to push government spending up by 7% or more of gross domestic product in most advanced countries by the middle of this century. This figure of 7% of GDP is highly conservative. 
we can put flesh on the bones of this by noting that 7% of GDP would in the United States be more than twice that country's very high level of annual defence expenditure. 7% of GDP is more than advanced countries generally spend on education at all levels at the present time. So where will this extra spending happen? Well, increased healthcare spending will be by far and away the biggest single item. In fact, additional spending on health is going to account for at least 4% of GDP out of the overall increase in government spending. Another way of looking at this would be to say that in several decades' time, governments are going to spend more than half as much again as they currently spend on health. Now, it might seem that there's nothing very surprising right now about saying that governments are going to spend more in future on health. There's been a big temporary increase in health spending to fight the pandemic. And after the pandemic, governments are going to spend more on an ongoing basis to build stronger defences against future pandemics. But extra pandemic-related health spending won't go anywhere even vaguely near 1% of GDP, let alone 4% of GDP or more. The main reason why health spending will grow greatly over the next three decades will be precisely the reason that it's grown so much over the past three decades, and that is the expanding technological capabilities of medicine. Medicine has, over the long haul, got progressively better and better at treating a wider range of diseases and conditions. Total spending on healthcare has risen greatly as a result, and a lot of this extra spending has been paid for by government. It might seem strange to talk about big past increases in health spending when in many advanced countries health systems have been under intense budgetary strain over recent years. Public hospitals in many countries have been in a parlous state, short of supplies, overcrowded, patients in corridors. Nurses and other health workers have been leaving public hospitals in droves because of poor pay and conditions. A good example of this is France, where things got so bad that in 2019, Doctors and nurses took major industrial action to protest the state of affairs. In emergency rooms around the country, doctors and nurses have been on strike. They say they're fed up with deteriorating working conditions that are putting patients' lives in danger. It's a day of mourning for casualty department nurses, a sober procession to spare a thought for their colleagues at their wits' ends and for patients who have died for want of adequate care. Bobby. Bobby, you came to the ER feeling pain in your abdomen. 28 hours later, you were dead in your stretcher. Jeanette, you were a nurse in the ER. You saw conditions deteriorate for a decade. You took time off because of your burnout. We thought you would come back all rested. You committed suicide. Accident and emergency workers are calling for help, condemning a healthcare system in crisis which mistreats both doctor and patient the causes of which have been criticised by an independent report. It says the understaffing is due to budget constraints. There's a paradox here because in France and every other advanced country, 
health expenditure has actually been increasing. Government health spending in 2019 was larger as a percentage of GDP than it had been a decade earlier and a lot larger than it had been three decades previously. This is true even in countries where health systems have been in a state of ongoing crisis such as the United Kingdom. It's been despite the major long-term increases in health spending that the pressure on health systems has grown. The reason is that funding has not risen in line with demand. Demand for health services has continually risen for a whole range of reasons, but the most important has been the expanding capabilities of medicine. The fact that medicine is able to treat many conditions more effectively than it did in the past and also to treat conditions that were previously untreatable. This progress has delivered huge benefits to humanity, but the advances in medical science have come at a significant cost and have been one of the biggest sources of budget pressure on governments. So-called austerity measures haven't been about cutting total health expenditure. Rather, they've represented a desperate attempt to slow its rate of increase. So what about the future? Well, what we can expect in the coming decades is a major acceleration in the rate at which health spending increases. This is because the technological capabilities of medicine are now expanding more rapidly than in the past, and healthcare spending is already rising more quickly as a result. At the centre of the story is the bioscience revolution which is greatly increasing our understanding of the molecular basis of disease. The foundations of this were laid with the sequencing of the human genome. And the impact of this scientific revolution on medicine are already apparent in the arrival of increasing numbers of precision and customised medical treatments, which are much more effective but which cost appreciably more. These treatments cost more because they're complex, but also because they're highly specialised. It's already clear that the cost impact of the bioscience revolution will be felt broadly across medical practice, including in the treatment of the very widespread chronic conditions such as diabetes and chronic kidney disease, which account for a very large percentage of health expenditure. We now have the fundamental knowledge of the human genome, and importantly, we've developed technologies for being able to routinely read out a patient's genome. And now we are slowly but surely figuring out how to look at those differences and make medical decisions based on it. We're learning a lot about the DNA basis of many diseases. Cancer is going to be the earliest area of medicine um, affected by genomic advances. Why is that? Cancer is a disease of the genome. The reason cells grow out of control and form tumors is because their DNA, their genomes have picked up changes that make those cells grow out of control. So much of cancer treatment up until now has been imprecise. We just try sign if it doesn't work, we try sign else, if it doesn't work, we try sign else. We're now being able to upfront have information based on the unique genomic derangements in each cancer. Second area, rare diseases. We are now to a point that you have a patient, you don't know what is wrong with them, you sequence their genome, and a third to half the time already you can figure out what's wrong with them. That is just mind-boggling. Six years ago we thought that was impossible. You can do that. And then pharmacology and, and combined with genomics. Why is it that some people respond really well to the same medication as other people who respond incredibly poorly? Why is it? It's just imprecise. 
we're learning that there's slight spelling differences in each of our genomes that influence how we metabolize drugs. We've been talking about the human genome with the director of the National Human Genome Research Institute, Dr. Eric Green. So what we can expect to see in future is, for example, increasing spending on expensive specialty pharmaceuticals. We can also expect to see increasingly widespread use of so-called autologous transplants. These are organ transplants using organs which are grown in laboratories from the patient's own cells and which offer the potential not only to greatly reduce the problem of organ rejection, but also to overcome the worldwide shortage of donor organs. Now, there's nothing contrarian about saying that it'll be scientific advances which will be the main driver of increasing health expenditure over coming decades. This is a view which is consistent with how most health economists see things. But what hasn't been generally recognised is the way in which the pace of scientific progress has accelerated and the impact that this is going to have on health expenditure in the coming decades. This way of viewing the future of health expenditure is at odds with the widespread popular notion that the real problem is demographic ageing. There are lots of people who think that it's the increasing number of elderly people in the population which has been the main force driving health spending up. This isn't true, and it's not something which most health experts believe. Sure, population ageing plays some role in increasing health spending, but its role is much less than that of advances in medical science, for reasons which are explained in detail in the book. There are a range of other widely held notions about the reasons for the continual growth of health expenditure. One of them is the idea that the problem is too little competition and not enough play of market forces. There's something particularly unreal about this idea because the country where the health system is most fragmented, competitive and profit-oriented, that is the United States, is the country where health spending is higher than anywhere else with worse health outcomes. Equally unpersuasive is the idea that the problem is big pharma. Sure, it's important to prevent drug price gouging, but the fact is that even in those countries where drug prices are subject to tough governmental controls, specialty drug prices are at historically high levels. Trying to smash the power of big pharma doesn't offer any means of dealing with the overall problem of rising health expenditure. We're accustomed to worrying about rising health expenditure because we focus exclusively on the financing challenge. But this is the wrong way of looking at things. No one says that it is a problem that we today spend much more on leisure and entertainment and restaurant meals than we did, say, 50 years ago. And if we end up spending even more on those things in a decade or two decades' time, nobody's going to say that's a problem either. Well, this is even more true of health services. Health services are much more important for human well-being, 
and the expanding capabilities of medicine have meant that extra spending has over time delivered fantastic value for money. Now, given the potential for even better medicine as a result of the bioscience revolution, it'll be entirely appropriate to spend significantly more on better health services over the coming decades. The problem only arises because it is government which pays a large part of the health services bill. And government needs to finance that spending from taxes, which obviously nobody likes paying. And in this context, the only way of stopping government health spending rising considerably in future years would be to reduce government's share of total health spending, which means making individual citizens bear much more of the cost. But, you know, there's a reason why governments play such a big role in financing health care, and this is that leaving it to individual citizens would cut off the access of many to this crucial service, which, of course, is exactly what happens in the United States, which is the only advanced country without a system of universal health coverage. You can't significantly reduce government's share of health spending without attacking the principle of universal health coverage or, in the United States context, without significantly reducing health coverage for the poor and the elderly under Medicare and Medicaid. This points to a clear and inescapable conclusion, which is that government health spending is going to rise considerably over coming decades and that the only way of stopping this would be to deny growing numbers of citizens the benefits of access to the expanding capabilities of medicine. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. In the next episode, I'm going to be looking at the other major sources of spending pressure on governments and also at the options that governments have for responding to these pressures. The book, Bigger Government, The Future of Government Expenditure in Advanced Economies, is available in ebook, paperback and hardcover versions from all of the online book suppliers, including Kindle and Apple Books. You might also be interested in checking out my website and blog at pfmresults.com. This is Mark Robinson. Thank you for joining me and I hope to see you for the next episode.